Welcome to the show. I want to tell you about the best podcast in music, and that is Culture Creature. Culture Creature features entertaining conversations with the world's best musicians. You'll hear your favorite artists share unforgettable stories and discuss the music, movies, and art that changed their lives. Culture Creature includes interviews with punk icon Ian MacKay, party expert Andrew WK, and members of Rage Against the Machine, Faith No More, and many more. Subscribe to Culture Creature today wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy almost the new year! Do you have big plans? Are you going to make 2018 your own? Well, if you listen to the Cracked Podcast, you are a really cool person, and you should show it off with your very own website. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into your own unique place in the internet, showcase your work, blog or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks with a customizable, easy-to-build website with nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also sort of a fanboy today. I'm just going to tell you that up front. I'm very excited about these people, and it may even come through a little gooberish. It's just really cool we get to talk to them. This week's show is sort of different and new from the average Cracked Podcast for a couple reasons. It's a little trimmer than the average one. It's a little more of a straightforward interview. And it's got the writers of an award-winning movie. Yeah, I'm saying award-winning now. Call in my shot. They haven't done the awards yet this year. We're just going to predict it here. Stone Cold Block. Scott Neustadter and Michael H. Weber are my guests today. They are the writing team behind many excellent movies, including The Disaster Artist. It's one of the biggest movies of the year. We sat down on the day they found out the movie was nominated for Best Picture Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. Kind of crazy, man. It's great. And this movie, The Disaster Artist, is about another movie called The Room. You can Google it if you need to find out what it is. In basic terms, it's been called the Citizen Kane of bad movies. It's one of the landmark movies in the history of people ironically watching movies. There's a whole culture around it, too. There's screenings where people do choreographed things along with the movie. If you know of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, that movie is earnestly good and just very strange and fun. The Room is bad, but it has a similar kind of screening situation where people will throw spoons at the screen whenever they see a picture of a spoon in the background that keeps being shown in the house. There's an establishing shot of the San Francisco Bay and everyone chants, water! And there's a lot of other just choreographed fun, and that's how I first saw the movie. It was a transformative experience in terms of realizing, oh, we can have this much fun with this just broken of a movie. It's really poorly done. The Disaster Artist is also kind of a cool document of Los Angeles. I don't mean to harp on this city. If you don't live here, great. If you do, you know that there are certain strange phenomena that you will just come across in your day. Every street will need to be swept every week for some reason. There's a woman named Angeline in a pink car, and she's a celebrity just for existing somehow. And also at a certain time and place in L.A., you could see a single billboard for a movie called The Room. If you called the phone number on it, you spoke directly with the producer, director, writer, and lead actor of the film, Tommy Wiseau. And The Disaster Artist is directed by James Franco, who plays Wiseau as 
the person he is, an enigma, a maker of a terrible movie, and someone who has sucked many people, especially a man named Greg Sestero, into his very mysterious world. And it's a really phenomenal, dramatic piece of work about the silliest and most ridiculous movie ever made. And so it's very exciting just to get to talk to these working Hollywood screenwriters who do excellent work. And I know it's a little different. It's a little out of the ordinary. If you like this, which I think you will, hooray. And if you're not that into this, that's okay. We have a whole different episode next week. Only one other big thing to say before we get into that conversation. Uh, a lot of you have reached out on social media. A lot of you are inquisitive people and good for you. Uh, I said this last week and I'll, I'll say it again this week. I promise that we will speak honestly on this show. I will say the true things that I'm allowed to say and otherwise I won't say anything. It's a fun way to podcast, let me tell you. But the amount I am allowed to say this week legally is that we have a fun episode for you and I really, really hope you enjoy it. So please sit back or buy yourself a movie ticket. It's a fun movie, The Disaster Artist. Anyway, enjoy this episode of The Crack Podcast with writers Scott Neustadter and Michael H. Weber. I will be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined in the studio by Scott Neustadter. Hi, Scott. Hi there. How's it going? It's going great. We're also joined by Michael H. Weber. Hi, Michael. Hi. You're the writers of the movie The Disaster Artist, among many other movies, and I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I'm curious about a lot of things because I talked about it in the intro, but this movie is a lot. There, there's a lot of layers to it. When, uh, when did you guys get into the process of making this? Like how early on? What brought you into it? We were um, approached by um, Seth Rogen and uh, James Franco and Seth's producing partner. And uh, I don't know why they thought of us, but they had gotten a, a copy of, um, of the book, The Disaster Artist, um, yeah. which is written by uh, Greg Zestero and Tom Bissell. Right. Uh, Greg's one of the actors in the room. And the book was all about their experience making this, this crazy movie. We both uh, had seen the billboard for The Room, but had not seen the movie The Room and started oh. reading the book. And we're really fascinated. And I uh, put the book down in the middle and watched The Room in the least appropriate way, which is like alone in my, in my apartment. <laughs> right. And then, you know, it certainly got our attention. And by the time we finished reading the book, we were like, this is just too cool. We have to get involved in this somehow. So it was pretty early on. Yeah, that's great. And so you saw billboards like, because I think it came out in 2003, the movie The Room. And so you saw billboards in life then. That one billboard. It was up and uh, you oh, would drive by. It was one billboard on Highland. <laughs> uh, we, neither one of us was living in L.A. at the time. And um, we were visiting, I think, and we, we drove by and saw it. And it's, it's just it's a picture of Tommy Wiseau and he's looking down on the street and he looks very it's very dramatic looking and the it's lighting scary. is weird. And I wasn't yeah. sure if it was like Gene Simmons selling something or I didn't know <laughs> what that billboard was. And uh, we didn't Google it. We didn't really t think about it. We certainly didn't think it was a movie. Um, right, right. And when we came back, I moved here two years later or so, and it was still up. And if it was a movie, Billboard, it definitely would not still be up. So I never thought it was a film. And we thought it was, you know, it was an emporium or like there was a phone number on it. It was just the weirdest thing. Um, so we hadn't seen the movie. That's amazing because it is – it's such a strange – poster as weird as the movie is and as brilliantly weird and wrong it is the poster and the way it is is 
so deeply off-putting yeah. and the picture doesn't even look like Tommy Wiseau no, to me totally. We never called the number. We were scared. It was so weird. I thought, is this a costume store or an <laughs> off, 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 off Broadway production of someone's nightmare? It, right. It was before escape rooms or it could have been one of those things. <laughs> um, yeah. But the number was, you could call it and he would answer and he would, you know, what, you know, are you interested in seeing the room? And what is the room? We, we didn't know. We never called it, but a lot of people did. Tommy would set up a screening for you. He would, if you had enough people interested, um, he would show his masterpiece. I wonder how many people it required for him to set up a screening. I mean, would he do it if, if, it, if four people wanted to go? Would he set up a screening? I don't know. In in my head, the minimum is one. Right. <laughs> so that's all it takes. And he would watch Mine it. too. He would sit right next to you as right. you were watching it. <laughs> Probably do his lines along the That's fantastic. I, I feel like a lot of people discovered this movie through the internet. I'm so thrilled to learn somebody found it through a billboard. I have a really weird personal path to it where I found out about it by meeting Sandy Schler wow. on Whoa. a thing. I was a PA on a TV show called Franklin and Bash, and he was the script supervisor on it. And he, like in the movie and in the book, he's a, he's a working script supervisor. That's one of his better credits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he works a lot. He works a lot, and he likes you to know that he works a lot. I double-checked, and right now on IMDb, he has 56 credits under, they categorize it as miscellaneous crew, which I, th- which I think undersells how important a script supervisor is, but it's wall-to-wall work as a script supervisor. He says he's time. directed the room. He, he likes to... Um to, yeah. to say that a lot of the choices were his, which well, is interesting. I, yeah. Victory <laughs> has a lot of fathers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that because when I was working on that show, like I met him and I was like, oh, this guy's nice. And then the writer's, uh, writer's assistant was like, oh, my God, Sandy Schler is on this show. And I was like, sure, okay. And he was like, that's the guy who directed The Room. And I was like, what is The Room? And then I found out about it all through there. And it was told – as the director of the room. That was what the writer's assistant told me. Wow. Yeah. He was like, no, that's the guy and somebody should do something with this. And here we are. I am just so thrilled this movie exists and covers it. And it's a great movie. I, I tried to, as I was watching it, I kept asking myself, what kind of movie is this? Because there's a lot there in terms of what it could be. And I like I, I tend to go to Wikipedia to try to get like a cultural consciousness take on what something is. And Wikipedia categorizes it as a biographical comedy drama, which I think describes almost every story uh, that's ever been told. <laughs> if a jerk me pigeonholed you guys, like what what genre is this? What kind of movie is this? I would say it's a Biographical comedy drama. <laughs> Super fair. It, uh, <laughs> it's a story of a friendship. Is that a genre? It's uh, yeah, truly, yeah. So we we wrote a drama. We we kind of um, intentionally set out to tell the story of these two guys and their friendship. Um, we knew who we were working with. We knew that the room and Tommy himself. The the comedy is sort of inherent. Um, and so for us, it was figuring out kind of is there enough drama there in this story to hang a movie on and we really believe that there was Um, and it was great luck for us uh, to be partnered with funny people um, and not have to write jokes and not have to try to make something hilarious that already kind of is so right we had a great time with that I mean I I agree I think it works completely in that way and it's the cast is so loaded with comedians that I'm a huge fan of, yeah. and, and they get to just play it very straight. Like Hannibal Burris plays a guy working at an equipment rental house 
who is reacting exactly how you'd think. Like, he's just very shocked by these guys. He doesn't like dunk on them or something. I he's think just, that's probably yeah. ultimately going back to what Scott said in the beginning, why Seth and Franco came to us because this was unlike, say, This is the End. Some of the other movies that, that Seth's made, which are, are brilliant, brilliant comedies that we love, but it would take us all day to write two jokes. And, and those guys are joke machines. And they also allow a lot of exploration on set while shooting in terms of improvisation and sort of finding new bits and stuff. And on this one, there was not as much room to do that because in order for the emotional beats of the friendship to land, we had to kind of stick close to what was scripted. So that's probably speaks to why they came to us in the first place, that it was really a relationship movie more than it was a production hijinks movie. Right, right. And it is an adaptation of the book, The Disaster Artist, which is about the making of the movie and also about the friendship between Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero, his, his leading man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the book is, is really great, and, and it's um, every other chapter yeah. uh, switches perspective. So, like, the even chapters are all about this strange friendship, and all the odd chapters are about the making of the room. And for us, it was like, let's take the odd chapters and put them aside, adapt the even ones, and when we get to production, we can cherry pick the best stuff from those other chapters. Um, and that yeah. was always our kind of approach to, to how to do this the right way. That's really cool. When I was thinking about what kind of movie is this, I, as I watched it, I really had a knot in my stomach for Greg. I came away from it almost feeling like it had the beats of a slasher movie, sort of. <laughs> he like, makes some questionable choices. Yeah, and I, I couldn't figure out why... Greg stays, and I know you're working from from his his real life and his real book, and and what pushes Greg Sestero to not only stay with Tommy but make all kinds of mistakes in the process. It was it was fortunate for us to be working with um, you know a true story in that yeah. respect because definitely there are a few moments where you're like you want to just shake Greg and say get run man run get out of there right but there's a lot of different things that I think are going on there it's no one answer. Um, I yeah. think in the moment where Greg can can finally extricate himself, Tommy turns on the guilt and says, you know, I did all of this for you. Um, and when right. Greg, Greg in that moment thinks about all the things that Tommy in fact does and did do for him, that's a legitimate argument. Like he did inspire him to come to L.A. He did let him stay at his place. He did kind of give him the confidence that he desperately needed. I mean, I think that's definitely one of the main reasons. But there are others as well. It's, he was, they were friends. Um, they did this together. They have a lot of sort of shared history. They were the first people who kind of believed in each other, um, which I think goes a long way when you want to do something in the creative arts. For all those reasons, I think he he, um, he stuck with his friend. Sure, yeah. And also, I, as I think about horror movies, because I, I, I kept thinking of that thread of it, <laughs> that I've determined, and probably no one else thinks it's true. Uh, but no, there, I, there was always a little bit of a vibe of Talented Mr. Ripley, which is not a horror movie, but a thriller. Oh, yeah. And Ripley's yeah. mentioned in the book quite a bit. Ripley works on a few levels. There's sort of the, there's a stalkery thing going on that's a little creepy. There's impersonating someone you're not. Yeah. So some of those, not exactly horror, but more of a thriller elements like that, are definitely in the DNA of, of our movie. Oh, yeah, totally. Tommy is so mysterious in life. And as far as I can tell, a lot of mysteries about him are still mysteries. He refused to say what age he is. And as far as I know, no one knows. He refused to say where his money comes from. And as far as I know, no one knows. And then also, 
when people ask him where he's from, he transparently lies and says New Orleans, uh, which is inc- just the best lie. Really great. You know what I'll say about that last one, though? <laughs> I don't know anyone who loves being an American as much as Tommy Wiseau. So as far as I'm concerned, he's been here a long time, wherever he's from. Yeah. He's American. He loves it here. He's so proud of being an American. <laughs> so let Tommy be American. Oh, yeah, USA. Someone on Reddit did a deep dive on his origins, and they think he is from Poland. Yeah, we we, um, we had inklings <laughs> of some of the answers. Okay. And we talked about whether or not to tiptoe around them or to just expressly state them. And our whole sort of idea was the answers are nowhere near as interesting as how desperately Tommy doesn't want us to know them. And the aura that he builds up in this mystery, and why is it so important that we don't know how old he is? Why does he care so much that even his best friend, Greg, can't know that they're not the same age, like when they're clearly not? Um, What is that about? Most movie directors, if all he wanted to do was make a movie, why, why the mystery? Why not just say the answer? And we thought that was cooler than to just demystify it or say Poland or say whatever, like his date of birth, um, sure. which we don't know. When we were going to Toronto for the film festival, the studio was willing to fly us. Um, all we had to do was give them our driver's license information so they could book <laughs> the tickets and Tommy wouldn't do it. He paid for his own ticket. No way. Yeah. Really? True story. <laughs> <laughs> But he's been missing out on every free flight of his life. There you go. Short-sighted, but you know what? He has a reason. (laughs) Apparently, he did an interview on Howard Stern last week, and you have to show identification to get into that building and was sort of giving them a hard time about showing his ID even to get into the building. So like Scott (laughs) said, why he holds on to that and doesn't allow those facts to come out is much more interesting than the answers themselves. When it, it plays into that, thriller aspect almost because you think of every monster origin or the movie Psycho kind of origin, it's from a place of great pain. And he's Mm. clearly in tremendous pain as a person if he can't just tell people how old he is or where he's from. Yeah, there's also something really interesting. Like they go to L.A. together after sort of knowing each other a brief period of time. And Greg's mom is like, what's up with this guy? Like, I don't get it. And then when you meet him, you really go, what is up with this guy? I don't get it. And so it was weird for us to not even – acknowledge that when they finally arrive in that apartment, Greg has to be like, "Uh uh-oh, there's only one bedroom. What's this about? And we wanted to make sure that, like, at least you touch upon the, like, Greg is not so naive to be like, oh, this seems fine. This seems perfect. Everything's wonderful. Like, there had to be a moment where he questioned, did I do the wrong thing here? (laughs) Uh, But Tommy, I mean, if you meet him and and whatever else, despite it all— um, he's actually like a really sweet, nice man. The, the terror, the malevolent presence, as yeah. Odenkirk says, um, none of that actually manifests. It's re- he's a really nice man. Um, he doesn't oh. seem like he has an ulterior motive. He doesn't seem like he had he wants anything nefarious from anyone. That's all kind of just what we bring to the table. That, oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. And in the film and the book, he does terrible things and and very nice things and everything in between. We also, at Cracked, we've often done, uh, it's called Stanley's LA Comic Con. It's a convention they do downtown in LA. And he'll usually have a booth. So I've like briefly shaken his hand. underwear and... Uh, like a, a lot of footballs and DVDs. And, uh, and you can meet him and it, feel, it felt very distant meeting him. I was just like, I still have no idea who this person is. I've just briefly shaken his hand. We've met him... Many times and and done some press stuff with him since the movie's come out, and I I still not convinced he knows who we are or understands <laughs> the process of screenwriting. Franco and Rogan wisely 
uh, sort of kept him away from us when we were writing the first draft and sort of laying down the foundation of the movie. And Tommy negotiated his own contract, and part of that was that the producers had to listen to his notes on the script. Tommy, I'm not sure he understood traditionally what a script note is. It was more an opportunity for him to sort of air old grievances, Uh, one of them being against Sandy Sclair and and Sandy going around (laughs) saying he directed the movie, which isn't really a script note. But um, we didn't have all that much interaction with Tommy when we were writing it. And then in the last couple months, uh, we've spent quite a bit of time with him. And and every time we meet him, it's kind of like the first time. I'm not sure he... My, my, who we are. <laughs> my best Tommy story was was um, right before the premiere. He's pacing in the back, and and I thought that's a very human thing to do. He's nervous. Yeah. Um, there's we're about to show this movie that's about his life, and you know who knows how it's going to be received. I mean, we were all nervous. So I went over and I said to him, you know, man, what it must be like to be here. Like, what are you feeling right now? And he's like, I'm not here. This is just my ghost. What? And I was like, cool. Tommy Wiseau. See <laughs> Bye, dude. That is some Jaden Smith style, like, yeah. brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was fun to write dialogue for. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace, and they want to support you. You are probably writing something or thinking of something or making something that the whole world should see. And I don't know if you noticed that www bit on web addresses. That's the World Wide Web, baby. Show it to everybody. Squarespace has beautiful templates. Squarespace has world-class designers making those templates, and you can customize it into your very own website that feels and looks like you. It's also optimized out of the box for mobile. A lot of people listen to podcasts on their phones, and you know you do all kinds of internet browsing on your phone. Your website will look great to everyone who's consuming the internet that way. You can also use Squarespace's analytics to help you grow in real time. And again, nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. If you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's C-R-A-C-K-E-D. You can read it off the logo, folks. That is squarespace.com, offer code CRACKED. Support for today's show also comes from Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how do they do that, sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I'm very comfortable myself. I received a Casper mattress in that crazy small box. I brought it upstairs by myself. Look at me. And I have been sleeping very, very well on it ever since. It's just more comfortable and more enjoyable than any mattress I've had in the past. And you'll get to feel that too if you try one out. I highly recommend it. Start sleeping ahead of the curve, Schmitty the Clam style, with Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com cracked and using cracked at checkout. That's casper.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Was there any challenge to 
this is in many ways a period piece just because it's specifically about those years of making the movie. I believe a six-month production and then a lot of years leading up to mm-hmm. it and then the release. How much did the ongoing phenomenon of this being a cult and film and a growing thing, how much did that play into the process of writing it? I don't think it really did. We were um, concentrating very much on then. There's sort of like their life pre-room. There's the making of the room. And then we had to truncate a little bit of the the phenomenon part um, because I don't know. We couldn't let too much time pass sure. and still tell the Greg and Tommy story in a, in a succinct manner. But definitely the one thing that was most interesting is when we tested the film – and I think we knew this, like as big the, as the room is, it's still like only small pockets of film people know it that well. Yeah. Um, it's not a worldwide phenomenon in, in the way that Rocky Horror now, you, you know what that is. Sure. Um, and so when we tested the movie, I think the, the audience was like, that's a really funny movie. James, why did why was he doing that accent? And like, why <laughs> did you pick these this story? And, and, and no one really knew that it was based on a true story. And there was a lot of conversation about how do we convince them? How do we show them that this is a real thing? I think that's where the side-by-side at the end stuff comes from. And uh, we had written in the screenplay some of the talking heads that opened the movie, the the celebrities who love the room and were giving it yeah. some sort of, you know, the cultural context. Um, and we put that back in because it wasn't in that cut where we, which we showed to the audience. Oh, and it, it helped sort of explain that, like, no, this is a real thing in the real world that has influenced and impacted a lot of – People, I don't think anyone's asking the question now, is The Room a real movie? Yeah, because if folks haven't seen The Disasterist yet, at the beginning it has testimonials from people you love, like Kristen Bell, Adam Scott, J.J. Abrams. They all show up to say, this is a, this is a remarkable work. There is, there there is nothing words. quite like this. Yeah, in their own words. We, we only wanted to have people there who could speak to their love of this thing. We didn't put words in anyone's mouth. Oh, that's really exciting, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you bring up Rocky Horror because that – is kind of the one touchstone, I'd say probably especially for older generations of something like this, where like when I did finally see this movie, I saw it in a theater at one of the sort of choreographed screenings where everyone throws plastic spoons mm-hmm. and everyone sees the San Francisco band and says, water, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Shut the door. Right. <laughs> Every time they walk into a room, they keep the door open. <laughs> yeah. As far as I think like the history of American film, it's pretty much Rocky Horror being great in, a, in an intentional way, I think, and then also having that choreographed element. And then this movie after it is a movie where there's that kind of event around it is that the future of bringing people to movie theaters, that kind of event, that kind of thing where you experience something as a group with people? I, th- I mean, all of my favorite movie experiences are in those movies where everyone's kind of getting into it and, and you feel the camaraderie. Those are my favorite things. It's definitely been a while since we saw a movie that you kind of felt you needed an audience to see. Um, sure. It's, I think it's and, rare, yeah. Yeah, and it's this definitely, I think, is improved by – that communal aspect. I don't know if you guys saw Snakes on a Plane when it came out. No, but that it would be perfect. I saw it the opening weekend, and when the lights came down, the whole crowd started hissing because they just wanted to create a snake vibe before the film even started. That's amazing. It was the best. If I saw it another way, it would have been, totally. oh, this is this movie, and it's this internet joke, and that's all I get. But I th- this movie, The Disaster, I was like, the other touchstone that kept jumping up in my mind is Singing in the Rain. Or a movie like it where it's about a transitional moment in art and in film. Mm -hmm. And it's a moment where we start to have a 
movie that is a joke, but also a like cultural communal event in sort of the ironic direction. Like the polar opposite would probably be Star Wars, where it's communal because everyone's so excited about it and needs to see it 10 times when it comes out. Did, did you have any sense of... I think Disaster uh, Artist, though, is less about the irony, obviously. So if Disaster... Oh, sure. So sure. The Room, certainly, it, there's something, let's go watch this bad movie together and enjoy yeah. this experience together. And what's interesting is the Disaster Artist, hopefully people are getting together to watch it with, in, you know, obviously a different lens. But I think Disaster Artist is giving Tommy what he was hoping to get from The Room, which is validation. Yeah. So in a weird way, he Tommy got what he wanted, but it took the Disaster Artist getting made from the book about the making of The Room and the history of that friendship for Tommy to get what he intended to get off of just The Room. I guess whatever gets him there. And, and that's very exciting. Yeah, sort of a strange <laughs> journey, but yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and, and like you say, it's uh, The Disaster Artist is a, is a sincere movie and a, a real movie. It's, it's uh, The Room as a more also of a gag, sincere. That's what's so interesting about it is that it was not made to be campy. It was not made to be in any way uh, what we made it. <laughs> right. And so it's fun, like, just to be around Tommy watching and witnessing how everyone's reacting to the disaster artist. And it's not what he intended, but I, I do think the thing he wanted the most um, was to be loved. I don't think he wanted celebrity. I don't think he wanted any of that stuff. I really just think he wanted to be loved. And yeah. he was for the room in a way that I think required a little bit of brain reconception. And with the disaster artist, it's not. He's loved for Tommy. And that's what's different. And that's what's, I think, really cool now. It's so wonderful that that could happen. You know, <laughs> right. I'm just very happy for him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we are too. We are too. <laughs> as far as adapting works, because you've written many movies that are adaptations of novels and excellent. Uh, a couple of John Green books, Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns, Tim Tharp's The Spectacular Now, Kent Haruf's Our Souls at Night. How do you go about essentially selecting books that you'd be really excited to turn into something? First, we have to love the book. I mean, that's yeah. really the, the first emotion is loving the book and thinking that it's cinematic enough and, and we won't screw this up, that we can do it. <laughs> so it really starts there with it, as opposed to you have an original idea, you spend a lot of time talking yourself out of it and thinking it could be something else and sort of they're, they're not the same confines where an adaptation is a little more like bumper bowling. So it's also <laughs> really nice to be a fan first. Um, when you yeah, write, when you're creating something yourself, and and if you're you know if you're a fan of your own writing, you're like a sociopath. But if you read a novel and you're you're a fan first, and you're the goal is, I just want to I want to give other people what I just had, the experience I just had reading this. Um, that's kind of how we approach all of our adaptations. I think some of our listeners are uh, would like to be writers or screenwriters, or something like that. When you've adapted something, whether it's Fault in Our Stars or, or The Disaster Artist or anything in between, like with The Disaster Artist, you talked about approaching it dramatically, approaching it. This is a sincere piece that is these real people having real things happen. How do you go about trying to kind of continue that vision as your script is being produced? Oh, you mean like during production? Yeah, like as it transitions from this is our finished script and then once you're working with people. Uh, hopefully, yeah. you know, hopefully you've had enough conversations when this process started. Sure. To make sure that the people you're partnered with, producers, director, and so on, have the same vision. Yeah. Because the last thing you want is to turn in a script that you think is the vision you were talking about and they, you realize, oh, wait, they, they want a completely different movie. That's yeah. demoralizing and, and makes the chances of your movie ever getting made uh, slim to none. Mm. So hopefully you have those kinds of conversations before you start to make sure everybody's on the same page. 
So, so that certainly helps. That's And we've been very fortunate to work with people who have been inclusive and want us around. We only do things that we're pretty uh, passionate about and, and really love. And it's hard as screenwriters sometimes to turn that over. And then, you know, they call you later and say, see you at the premiere. We like to be involved. And we don't always get that. But we, we've been very lucky and we've worked with great people who have thought we were a sort of value add as opposed to um, people to keep away as the train was rolling. <laughs> In terms of discovering the the world of movies, just as people coming to the art form in life, I feel like I came to it through the internet. I feel like older people I've known have said, oh, I got Leonard Maltin's book and I just read everything, you know, or it, it was a very different process. How do you feel like different mediums, whether it's the internet or those old books or anything in between have influenced your enjoyment of films as a, a person and a writer? I grew up um, in a small town where there was not a lot to do, and movies was was my passion. It was the thing that like I cared about the most to, like I'm sure, a very annoying degree. <laughs> my first job when I was 12 was helping out at the local video store. Oh, wow. I worked at every single video store within a two-mile radius or three-mile radius that I could bike to growing up and continued to work there in college and really just would work the shifts no one wanted when it was empty and dead so that I could sit there with the movies and just watch them. And I would do film festivals of directors that I heard were great and didn't know anything about. By the time I was in in high school, I felt like I had seen virtually every movie that our local little video stores had in stock. (laughs) I don't remember a time when it wasn't my, my favorite thing. That's my story. I have a kid now who loves movies but doesn't ever have to like go anywhere to watch them. He can, he, if he wants to watch something, he press a button and it's there. Yeah. And he'll never know that sometimes they, the copy might be out and you'd have to wait and you, you know, it's not coming out yet. So you have the anticipation of the thing, like all the things that I, I, I vividly remember, he's not going to have any of that. And I feel like that's on the one hand, a little bit, a bit of a shame, but on the <laughs> other hand, how great that like, if he wants to watch some obscure, crazy thing, that took me until I was 23 to find in a video store, he probably can find it in 10 seconds. Yeah. I loved movies as a kid, but I I couldn't always afford to go to the movies. It wasn't until I was at Syracuse where it snows every day. Yeah. That, uh, as you know, we were, we were talking off mic about being Syracuse alums. Go orange. uh, Exactly. Let's go orange. It snows every day, basically from September through May. Yeah, which neatly covers the academic year. Yeah, yeah. So you do not want to be outside. And I was not in a fraternity. I did not have a way to get into bars or really want to go to bars. So I I was in my dorm room watching three or four movies a day, just plowing through movies for four years, basically. That was my education. The other thing is when when I went to college, that was the first time I had a computer. And thrown in with my computer for free was the CD-ROM of Cinemania. I remember that. Which was awesome. And it had... Um, what is Cinemania? So it had like 10,000 movies on it. And you couldn't watch the movies, <laughs> but it had clips for some of them, short little clips. But mostly what it had was you'd click on a movie, you know, usually a classic film, and they had three or four different reviews of that movie you could read. But almost always they had the Roger Ebert review. So through this CD-ROM, it was sort of... I, I was reading Ebert's reviews of every movie for, you know, decades, yeah. uh, that I, I learned as much about film and, and from, from that CD-ROM as I did from anything in a classroom, it certainly stoked my passion for film. And, and it was in some ways, uh, cause this was the mid nineties. So the internet was not what it is now, obviously. Sure. But in a weird way, that CD-ROM was sort of a rabbit hole I would go down because I'd click on one movie, read about it, 
watch a small clip, click on another movie related to that director or actor. And it's sort of, I feel like maybe that in some ways is how people are going to use the internet. There's obviously a lot more connected to the internet than that little CD-ROM back in 1996. (laughs) But that to me was uh, sort of changed my life, Cinemania. Well, yeah, the power of that rabbit hole is so exciting. Oh, yeah. You can just explore and explore and explore and it's all right there. Man, I miss going to a blockbuster and like pawing through things, like feeling like you were tangibly gathering the films to yourself. You no, know? you made discoveries that you were yeah. like, oh, wow, this. Yeah. I don't know if that happens on the internet in the same way. I think it, yeah, I think it's a lot of scrolling. The ability to have a movie like The Room, where it's a not very good movie that was enjoyed ironically by many people. It's like a product of plenty. You know, it's a product of we could watch any movie and there's so many good movies we could watch. It's kind of exciting to find this, you know? But in some ways the room was maybe the last one of these phenomenons that sort of took off by word of mouth. And and yeah. sure, sure, people talked about it on the internet, but it came around even before. It's not streaming online now. I mean, it's not, it's still a, a DVD people need to purchase or go to a screening ideally and see with other people. Um, It's not that easy to find either. No, it isn't that easy to find. So because that was sort of before social media when when the movie came out, it really was like the last one of these things that nowadays it feels like a lot of these sort of pop culture phenomenons come and go so quickly. There's sort of that we cycle through them so fast that the room really was a, a word of mouth phenomenon that started in 2003 and really slowly built up to what it is now. We had to hear about it through, I mean, the, even the word of mouth of calling the number on the billboard. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of an analog way of going about spreading the word on a movie. <laughs> yeah. As as far as just ironic enjoyment of movies, are there any favorites you guys have? Because there's a few podcasts out there completely dedicated to it, and, and there's various other things where people just sit with like a Neil Breen movie, and just really enjoy it for not working. I'm curious if you guys have any favorite, like, movies like that. We never really do that. I think that we are, we just, we, we know at, at this point how hard it is to make any movie. That, sure. That we, when we watch one, I think we're just kind of, like, hoping for entertainment. And and if it's a quote-unquote guilty pleasure, like, we don't feel guilty about it at all. Like, we're just sitting there <laughs> being like, this is a great movie. We love it. Yeah, no, there's movies you loved as a kid that you didn't know were bad. And oh, you watch sure. them over and over again. So there's certainly I have those kinds of movies that I watched Cannonball Run a million times as a kid. I didn't know that was a bad movie. I love that movie. I think I watched um, I watched Rad quite a bit. What is what is Rad? It's, isn't that the bike the bike movie? There's a movie about like BMX motor or BMX yeah, uh, bike riding. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah. You guys don't even know like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't know Rad. It there's, sounds familiar. I'm sure there's thousands of people at home being like, Rad! Like, yeah. finally! Rad is somebody's going to tweet at you with a Rad movie. poster. <laughs> uh, Look, there are obviously um, a lot of movies don't work, but like Scott said, it's so hard to get anything made. Sure. So so I appreciate noble failures when they were going when a filmmaker is going after something and maybe it doesn't quite fully work. The Room in some ways is, is the, the king of noble failures because Tommy really was going for something. Uh, he thought he was making a Tennessee Williams drama. That's the one thing that we, we've found is that a lot of people who've never even heard of The Room are enjoying The Disaster Artist and then they see The Room afterwards. So you don't have to see yeah. The Disaster uh, the Room first. You can watch them in either order or you could just watch The Disaster Artist. So that was uh, by intention. Yeah, that, that comes through. I, there's a lot of 
and I was thinking after watching it, there are a lot of films like, like I love Lawrence of Arabia and know very little about that historical period. Like it's a story about a person and that's what it's about. Yeah, you don't and need to be a baseball fan whatever. to watch Field of Dreams and feel something. It's about fathers and sons. And yeah. for us, the disaster artist is about a friendship. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Scott Neustadter and Michael H. Weber for coming on and talking about everything that it went into making a movie about a book, about a movie, and also people that changed the way we watch movies that don't work. Our footnotes this week are pretty simple. It's pretty focused on the disaster artist and the room and what goes into the crazy, mysterious world of the people involved. In particular, we're linking to a Reddit thread where they explore the origins of Tommy Wiseau, who, as we said on the show, he refuses to say his age and just vaguely claims to be young. He refuses to say where he's from and in particular claims that he's from New Orleans. Well, Reddit investigated the New Orleans thing and found he's actually most likely from Poland, and it's some really exciting detective work in a Reddit post. Beyond that, we are back at Los Angeles' UCB Sunset Theater on January 13th of 2018, the new year! Tickets will go on sale soon if they're not already. Go ahead and check sunset.ucbtheater, that's theater with an R-E, dot com, to get tickets to see us live. And as far as this show we did in a studio goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. You can hear them on Daptone Records. Our episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that is great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A place where I primarily talk about Snoopy because no one can stop my love of peanuts. You can find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.